Hi guys, uh, this is uh, Nick Danilov, aka Socrates, and I'm uh, here at uh, hacklab.to. Um, and uh, I have Eric Boyd with us today. Eric is uh, one of the co-founders of StumbleUpon and a very interesting guy altogether. And, and I thought he would make a very interesting subject for Singularity One-on-One. So, hi Eric and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, by the way, um, this is our first uh, on-location show, as it were. And I have to say a big, big thank you to that one anonymous, uh, very generous donor who provided funding for me to be able to purchase a video camera and some audio equipment uh, so that I'm actually able to go on location and uh, shoot interesting people and places like Eric Boyd, Boyd and uh, HackLab.io. So thank you, anonymous donor. I really appreciate your support. I, I envy his new camera equipment, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> it is really fantastic, but let's get, let's get back on topic here. So, Eric, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, perhaps you should start with how and when you got interested in technology in general? I, I pretty much always been interested in technology. I remember the first computer I had as a kid was the Commodore 64. I was probably 10. And I learned how to program that thing almost immediately. Partly because on the Commodore 64 there really wasn't a lot of other things to do. You know, there were a few games you could play. But mostly it was about the programming. And I remember I would buy books and they would actually like list out all the lines of code and I would just type them all in. And eventually I made my own games and that kind of stuff. It was, it was lots of fun. That's fantastic. So how old were you when you got that computer? Uh, like I said, I was about 10, something like that. So I was super young. I remember in particular, I, I definitely had it by grade six, because I remember I did I did one of my like big projects for a class on the Commodore 64. So that six, I grade six, I would have been 11, right? And and I was already an expert by that point, so I must have had it for a couple. And of then years. what happened then? Tell lead us through the story. What happened then after that Commodore 64? Uh, well, I I eventually upgraded to um, uh, 386. It was big time <laughs> at the time, man. I I remember especially on the 386, there was uh, there was a lot of games that ran so fast you had to install software that slowed your computer down. <laughs> oh, really? <Yeah. laughs> Those pieces of software were, were fun. Yeah, and and I didn't really do as much programming on, on the 386 as I did on the Commodore 64. There was some. I learned a, a language called Turing, which is it's like a language. I think it was like sponsored by the government of Ontario anyway. It's designed for like people to learn. And And then eventually I decided I would major in engineering as opposed to computer science or mathematics, which were the other two things that I was considering. And, and I went to Queens, and I, I basically just like spent all my time working on classes. It was hard, hard program. <laughs> so you did engineering at Queens University mm -hmm. in Kingston, yeah. Ontario. And tell us, how did you end up in Silicon Valley, or uh, before that, how did you end up as one of the co-founders at the very beginning of StumbleUpon, which is today one of the top five perhaps if not at least top ten but maybe even top five social bookmarking networks. yeah it's huge now it wasn't huge when I worked at it <laughs> uh, it, it's a relatively long story so when part of what I did when I went away to university is I got really interested in religion and this this story is gonna really meander from here <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah so I got really interested in religion and I joined this group called the Church of Virus which was this like kind of like 
religion about using memetics, the, the science of idea propagation, to design a new superior religion. And through that, I met David McFadzian, who hired me to work at JVN.com in Calgary. And JVN was the like classic.com. We had money from like an oil tycoon, Russian oil tycoon, like billionaire guy. And we had this like ridiculous, unbelievably huge scope and like 20 employees. And no hope of like actually implementing the, this, the scope of the idea. It was a really cool idea. It was like, we had this like, it was gonna, we were gonna fund ourselves with micropayments by skimming, skimming money off micropayments. So it was gonna be like a financial infrastructure for the web. And associated with the micropayments was gonna be this identity scheme. And then the identity scheme required this like social forum stuff. And there were all these interacting pieces. And it was really cool, but it didn't work. And, and when the dot com boom collapsed, we went down just like everybody else, right? But out of that, what happened is I met Jeff and Garrett, who are also working at uh, JVN. And we made quite a bit of money at JVN. And so when, when JVN went down, we were like, let's do our own thing. And we found uh, Justin as well. No, it was Justin who worked at, yeah, Justin who worked at JVN and Garrett who didn't. But anyway, the four of us started Stumble Upon after JVN went down. And one of the reasons it Stumble Upon was it was so good right out of the gate is we had lots of time at JVN. We had about six months while we were working there that we knew JVN was going to go down, and we were brainstorming ideas about what to do for like the whole six months. So by the time we had our opportunity, our freedom, we had this like long list of ideas, and we chose the best one, and we already knew exactly how to implement it and exactly all the steps to take. <laughs> Which is why, like, I think it was only three months and we had the first beta of StumbleUpon out, and it's very much similar to exactly what you see today. There's like a toolbar with a button, and you pick some categories, and it recommends content on the web. Like, yeah, <laughs> three months we delivered it. Like, <laughs> and what was your part specifically in that toolbar? What did you do? So, so I actually did the toolbar for Internet Explorer. That was my part, and um, Jeff did the toolbar for. Um, what at the time was called Mozilla, but eventually became Firefox. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Garrett did the backend server. He actually did the thing that would um, categorize all of the sites and maintain the database of ratings and do the recommendation. Mm -hmm. And Justin did all of the like business and accounting and patent and like all that like stuff that the rest of us couldn't tolerate at all. <laughs> You'd need a guy like that in a startup, by the way. <laughs> we would be nowhere with it. So basically it was four of you guys starting StumbleUpon? It was four of us, yeah. <clears throat> That's awesome. And and uh, where was that? That was in Calgary. In Calgary. So so lead us to the story. I know that at some point you decided to part ways. So what mm -hmm. happened afterwards? So, so what happened afterwards, I worked there for about nine or ten months. And, and, and I was in the weakest position. I had the least money. Um, Garrett and uh, Justin were both living with their parents and Jeff had more money than I did so I was like the weak financial link I, I basically had to leave because I realized like it was it was the dot-com collapse that like if you approached anybody with a business plan that said dot-com on it <laughs> man you were laughed out of the room <laughs> yeah. yeah so there was no way we were gonna get money and and our user base was growing and our revenues were growing but they were not growing anywhere near fast enough that we were going to be able to pay the four of us salaries at any kind of rate in the next couple of years. And so I didn't have enough money to stick it out. And I considered like borrowing from my parents or whatever. I see. But the other thing that had happened is to join Javian, I left my degree at Queens. I had three of the four years done. I see. And I decided that if I was ever going to go back, I should go back now and finish my degree because it had already been three years. So that's what I did. I left StumbleUpon to go back and I finished my degree at Queens. So you actually completed your engineering Yeah, I completed degree. my degree. That's why I got the iron ring now. So I completed my engineering <laughs> degree. And that's right. how I got into Silicon Valley. Because once I had the engineering degree, then I was, um, 
<clears throat> eligible for the TN visa, the NAFTA visa, and yeah. I, that's how I got into the States. A company there wanted to hire me, and they, I used my diploma to get the TN visa. So you worked at Stumbleupon in Calgary, you went back to Queens to finish your mm -hmm. engineering degree, and then you end up in Silicon Valley. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I went, while I was working at Queens, I like put my resume up on all kinds of crazy websites, and I, my resume was pretty good already. I had some decent work experience. It wasn't Absolutely. just it wasn't just the dot coms, but I also worked at an in, like an industrial research thing, and and I had some engineering experience even in high school. So yeah, I I got this offer from a company in. Uh, Silicon Valley to join a high-tech startup there and I jumped at that chance because I've always wanted to live in Silicon Valley and 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 like live that dream so yeah I, I jumped to that chance and I went and I moved to San Jose California and and I worked at a high-tech startup called um, Jetalon that does um, industrial sensors basically we they made like <coughs> liquid flow sensors for customers like Intel and Applied Materials and AMD and Texas Instruments and and I got to fly to many of these customer sites and see like semiconductor fabs and really, really cool places. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. That was awesome. And then you go to, I guess, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh... yeah, so the um, Jetalon moves from San Jose to uh, Walnut Creek or Pleasant Hill, I think. Uh -huh. and, and I moved to San Francisco because it's a convenient ride on the public transit there. And I live in San Francisco and I, and I go part time at. Um, Jetalon so that I can work on my own things for a while, right? I, I do three days a week for the longest time. And I'm experimenting on the side, and that's when I find Noisebridge, the hackerspace in San Francisco. And and I like, that place is just so incredible. I mean, if you think Hack Lab is incredible, you need to go see Noisebridge. 5,600 square feet of exactly this kind of, like, density. Oh so there's God. all, it, like, here we do, like, basically, like, hardware electronics and programming. Mm -hmm. at, at Noisebridge, they have whole areas that are dedicated to, like, you know, sewing. There's like a sewing corner, and there's uh, there's a science corner where they do like um, EEG stuff, and there's uh, there's like a whole wood shop and metal shop. There's a big kitchen where they actually do meals many nights a week. There's wow. a couple of awesome classroom areas. Yeah, it's like this place times ten, right? <laughs> so, what do we do to bring the community here in Canada and in Toronto in particular to sort of that kind of level of engagement? I mean. I spent myself 10 weeks in in, uh, in Ames, in Mountain mm -hmm. View, and I was totally blown away by the sort of vibrant, sort of boiling community of hackers and, and you know, Silicon Valley pirates and, and, and all kinds of people who want to change the world. And then you come back home in Canada, and, you know, I love Canada, I love Toronto, but I get the feeling that we're a little bit more sleepy here. So how do we wake up the masses? I, I have no idea. I wish I knew the answer to that question. but. But I agree fundamentally that like there, there's just less excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, there's there's actually a lot of techie stuff in Toronto when you start exploring around. I mean, there's some very large Toronto tech meetups, and we're not the only hackerspace here in Toronto. There's actually four of them, which is kind of remarkable. But they're all That's amazing. I yeah. was not aware of that. Yeah, they're all roughly the same sizes as Noisebridge or as as HackLab, and and there's nothing like Noisebridge that brings together like thousands of people, right? There's nothing like that here. That's fantastic. And then, so so you spend some time in, in uh, Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, you get engaged in the hacking community mm -hmm. there. How did you end up coming back in Toronto, and uh, were you one of the original founders of this? No, space? I was not one of the founders. I've only been here for a little over a year, and the space itself is about three and a half years. Oh, wow. I, sometimes people call me a founder. I don't know how to stop people from doing that. All I am is the president. I was not here for the founding. I see. Yeah. Well, that's still an important position. So. Mm -hmm. 
um, and we come to present day. So uh, perhaps it's time for us to start talking finally about some of your present projects mm -hmm. and uh, that little gadget especially as an embodiment of a perfect example of what you do currently. What is that thing anyway? So it's called SoundSpark and what it is is a, it's a, I call it uh, electronic jewelry. And basically all it is is there's a little circuit with a microcontroller and a microphone and it listens for sound and then lights up LEDs in response. So usually it flashes in time with my voice. And if there's music, it'll also flash in time with music. Or when other people speak and I'm silent, it'll sometimes go with them. Mm -hmm. But it responds most strongly to my voice because the microphone is right on my throat. Like, it's right here. Yeah. 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 And so so this is an example of uh, the, the, the electronic jewelry that you're producing. What's the name of your company and how can people find more about that stuff that you do right so, now? So the name of my company is SenseBridge, SenseBridge.com. Or, or for the hackers, go to SenseBridge.net where I, like, reveal all the details. So almost everything I make is open source. You can go download the schematics and the code and see how it works and, and make your own if you really want. And um, this is kind of an embodiment of a larger philosophy of SenseBridge, which, which is in the name itself. So the idea is we're bridging our senses. What this does is it takes your audio sense and it converts it into your visual sense, right? So it's bridging those two senses. And, and most of the things I make do similar things. So the, the one that SenseBridge is most famous for is called the North Paw. It's a compass anklet. And what it does is it gives you a sense of direction. You strap it around your ankle, it has eight vibrating motors, and it vibrates to tell you what way is north. That's, that's fantastic. All right, so let's see some of the other electronic jewelry that Eric Boyd uh, has produced here. Uh, and then we'll go back to our interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is the North Paw that I was just telling you about. It's a compass anklet, so you strap it around your ankle like this. And, and inside, like I said, there's eight vibrating motors. So it looks kind of like this. Okay, and, and what does it do? It tells you north? And, yeah, and it tells you north. The one on the north side of your ankle, so when you, when you wrap it around your ankle, it's like this. The one on the north side of your ankle, so the one right here would be vibrating. And when you rotate, what happens is the one that's vibrating changes to the one that's here. So no matter what way you face, it's vibrating north. And it gives you a sense of direction. So it's like super useful when you come up out of the subway and you're disoriented. Or also if you just have a particularly poor sense of direction, lots of people use it for that. <laughs> yeah, I should yeah. get one for my sister though, I think. <laughs> yeah. And Even I also make... Yeah. GPSs. But how is it different from, say, the iPhone uh, North uh, Compass or something uh, like well, that? Well, it's, it's different because it's persistent. So the, the iPhone thing, when you pull it out of your pocket and you get, you get your bearings, that just gets you like a momentary north. Whereas when you wear this, it's always telling you which way is north. And the advantage of that is that um, your brain will adapt over time. This is, this is actually the reason I built it. There was this Wired article in 2004 about a German guy called uh, Udo and his group called Fieldspace at the German University of Innsbruck who built a belt version of this. And they claim in the Wired article that if you wear it over time, what happens is you stop feeling the vibrations and you start just knowing what way is north. Basically, your brain like integrates this sense of north, and it becomes a part of you, so that you always know what, what way is north. And the German guy actually claimed that after he wore it, he developed not only the sense of direction, but also a homing instinct, like a pigeon, that he could always point the way home, which I thought was a super cool thing. Totally didn't happen when I wore a North Paw, but... <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's typical of Wired articles, is they kind of like oversell the, the benefits of technology, you know? And, and it, it, millions of people read the article, and I think it's the basis of why there's so much demand for the North Paw. I've sold several hundred of them now, and I think a lot of it is just like people really want to have that same experience or, and see what, see what it feels like. And it does, 
it does actually integrate into your brain. Like after a while, you don't feel the vibrations on your ankle anymore, and you really do just know what way is north. But but the dominant experience of it for me actually was this thing um, Quinn Norton wrote about. I use her words because her words are so much better than mine. She's like a science reporter, and uh, she wrote about this experience she had where she would be she was in a place that she was very familiar with, but the North Pole was telling her that North was in a different direction than she thought North was in, right? North was like that way instead of this way, like her brain was telling her. And there, there's this like mental battle that happens in your head about like, well, how can I possibly be wrong? I've been here hundreds of times before, right? Like I know this place, but it turns out that you don't, right? Like North is, y your brain somehow has gotten it wrong. And, and what actually, she figured it out, what actually it is is your brain often associates North with the important direction. So especially indoors, the important direction in the orientation of a building can be very different from north. It can run east-west or whatever. But your brain will conflate these two concepts, and then you'll have this mental map that's totally inaccurate. Right? You'll think you're walking north when, in fact, you're walking east or west or whichever direction it actually is. And trying to let the North Pole win those battles mentally is, is this like strenuous mental exercise. Right? This like <laughs> I need to like readjust my entire mental map of this place. <laughs> But is it is it the case that you said that that was interesting to me that that you can actually learn to sort of hardwire the north into your brain so that at least some people eventually after wearing this for a while can sort of take it off mm -hmm. and always know where the north is. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was written about in the German article, and and in my experience, it's true for the places that you wear the anklet to. So like anywhere where I've worn the north paw my brain will remember where north is in that place. But what, what I didn't get, and I was hoping to get, was the ability to extend that to places you hadn't been, which totally didn't work. I'm, my sense direction is still roughly as bad as it ever was, outside of places that I've worn this, right? I places see. I've worn it, I'm pretty good now, but... <laughs> now, you said that it's all open source, so uh, people can go to your website and get, uh, you know, the blueprints of mm -hmm. how they can make these for themselves. But, but for those like me, for example, who are totally inadequate in, in making them themselves. Uh, you said you sold a few hundred. So what's the cost of, say, uh, the North Pole and the other? Uh... So, so the North Pole, I sell kits for $149. Uh -huh. And that gets you like a, a bag with a bunch of parts, and you have to solder them together. Oh, I see. Yeah, but I also sell an assembly service, which is another 65 bucks if you want me or a friend of mine to solder them together. Uh -huh. And we test them and make sure they're working, and then we ship them out fully assembled. I see. So th that's that's fairly expensive product and, and the reason is there's there's a very expensive compass in it the vibrating motors are expensive the lithium yeah. polymer battery is expensive having the anklet made was time consuming and difficult and so on and so on right like it's it's a complicated product whereas the this thing the sound spark i sell for 29 bucks uh -huh. and so it's much more affordable because it's much smaller and much simpler yeah and it's yeah. kind of uh, actually visually very effective i mm -hmm. think it, it's kind of a conversation starter, especially if you go to a nightclub or something. I the imagine. girls really love it, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Fantastic. There you go. So that, that's the best-selling point for perhaps. Okay, so what else do you have there? Uh, well, I have HeartSpark too. So, so this is an older HeartSpark in green. I also have them in black. And it, it's a necklace. You wear it similar to the way you wear the HeartSpark or the SoundSpark. And what it does, you also wear it with a chest strap. Which I probably have in here, actually. Yeah, here it is. You wear it with this chest strap, which is a it's a polar chest strap, mm -hmm. same kind that runners and bicycle riders wear. 
and, and monitors their hearts. So this thing transmits wirelessly to the heart spark, and then the heart spark flashes in time with your heartbeat. Oh wow! So you can have a visual representation. You have a of visual your heart representation rate. of your heart rate, which is super cool. Yeah. So basically, you like broadcast your feelings, as it were. And and my traditional joke about this one to get back to ladies again is don't wear it on a first date. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you, I mean, it it's it goes both ways. It could be horrible, but it could be also fantastic, fantastic right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess. I mean, if if she sees that you're super excited and and that turns her on too, it could totally work. Yeah, yeah. it could work in speed dating situations <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> All right. So, uh, do you want to go back and sit down again? Sure. Yeah. All right. Oh, I didn't show you. There's one more, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, this one. It won't look like this. This is just a prototype. But this is called Mood Spark, and it's a. Uh, it's a uh, like the Mood Rings of old. The idea is that it'll show the body temperature. So right now it's showing blue because I'm relatively cold, but if I warm up, the the LED changes to red, and it fade between the two. And and I'm hoping to be able to sell this for a, a price. Not too much more than, for instance, the SoundSpark. So I'm hoping like a $50 region. But it'll depend a lot on how the final form factor works. So this one I made, you can see I made it with just what's called the wire wrap technique. I just took a silver wire and I coiled it around and made the ring piece. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping to like mill aluminum and create an actual enclosure that will hide the circuit board a little more. And it'll look, it'll look more stylish. I see. Very interesting. Yeah, and I also have actually while we're doing this. I have another, this is going to be another thing like the heart spark. The idea is there's a bunch of lights here, and they, they're going to go up and down in time with your heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So it's, I call this one heart rise. It's not done yet, though. It's only a prototype. So it's like equalizer for heart. Exactly, exactly. And I'm hoping, too, if you know the persistence of vision effect, I'm hoping that when you do this, you'll be able to see your like EKG signal, which oh, will be wow. really cool. It'll be fake because you don't actually get EKG from the chest traps, but it, it'll still be really cool. Awesome. Very creative. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's go sit down again and go back to the interview. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we saw a number of uh, cool products that, that you make. Uh, what else uh, is interesting about you? I mean, I, I, I find you're a fascinating guy. That's why I decided to come and do mm -hmm. an interview in person, because you're involved in uh, Hacker Lab. Uh, you, you do SenseBridge products. Uh, you're one of the co-founders of StumbleUpon. And, and, and I think uh, you have a very interesting philosophy behind uh, SenseBridge. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about bridging the, the sort of the gap between the different senses. How did you come up with the idea and what's the philosophy behind yeah. it? Well, so originally SenseBridge started as the NoiseBridge cyborg group. The idea was to use technology to augment ourselves, right? And then the North Pole was the first example of that. And the name has obvious derivation from NoiseBridge, right? What we did was drop the noise and put in the sense. <laughs> yeah, so that's where the name actually came from. But we like the name because it, it, is, it is about bridging your senses. It's about augmenting yourself with ele electronics. And so I do a lot of like cyborg kind of stuff. I ran Cyborg Camp Toronto here last year. We, we brought together about 50 people for a day-long unconference, and um, people got up and, and you know, talked about whatever cyborg, whatever aspect of cyborgology they wanted to talk about. So I gave a presentation on wearables. We had a couple of presentations on robotics. There was a couple of presentations on, on like aspects of identity, cyborg identity, and and things like, you know, what what will what will the world be like when you can just copy yourself infinitely? You know, you can have like machine copies of yourself, or you can like upload your consciousness into computers. All that kind of stuff is like super fascinating to me. And I mean, in in relating to the kind of like singularity idea, right? This is something that Kurzweil talks about all the time. Is 
we're going to become our machines. That's the smooth pathway to singularity as opposed to an abrupt pathway where like some, you get a god in a box, right? So I've, I've been working very hard to try to make the smooth pathway happen because I think it's a lot friendlier than the hard takeoff pathway. And I mean, the, one reason I'm working so hard is because I see that the smooth takeoff pathway is, is failing right now. What's actually succeeding is the hard AI pathway, right? I mean, we're making vast strides in computer intelligence, and we're not really making any progress on the cyborg stuff. I mean, there's like Kevin Warwick and, and like who? <laughs> yeah, like me. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. basically it. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Warwick, actually, yeah, I've interviewed him twice on my show, and uh, actually the most interesting experiments that he did he did almost 20 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. So, so it's been a while. And, um, yeah, that was one of the things we discussed with him. But let me grab a couple of points that you mentioned there. And one of them is God in a box. Mm -hmm. So now let me go back again and connect that with the fact that you were a member of this sort of very sort of interesting or peculiar or different kind of a church or religion. Mm -hmm. Church of virus. Yeah. Church of virus. So let me ask you this first of all. Are you religious now, and how has this changed in time? Uh, I, I'm not religious now. I, I've never really been religious. So. And what about the Church of Virus? So, well, the Church of Virus is kind of, like I said, it's this like intellectual religion trying to take the idea of memetics, which is self-propagating ideas, and make that into a kind of a vehicle to drive secularist values. I mean, that was the idea of the thing. But, but then the question is, because many people say that the singularity and artificial intelligence uh, or even, you know, the cyborg idea, it's in a way kind of like the rupture of the geeks or mm -hmm. the, the, the church of robotics, if you will, as Jaron Lanier calls it, or, or you know, the, the singular, the, uh, it's like religion for nerds. Yeah, So which, which I think is kind of true, but also really misleading in some ways, right? Like, I think that... I mean, one, one reason that the, that criticism does kind of hit home is in, in many people's lives, it does kind of play a similar role, right? In terms of like the, the teleological thinking that humans are kind of prone to, that, that kind of like, you know, religion of science is, is playing that role in people's heads, right? But in another way, I mean, the, the reason that, that people make that criticism is they, they want to somehow imply that the singularity thing is based on faith, that that there's no actual rational underpinnings, that people are being irrational, right? And I'm not, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think that follows just from the idea that it, it's performing a similar psychological function. I see. So let me go back then to the cyborg topic then, because, I mean, I would say it's one thing to enhance yourself with, with some kind of a voice-activated uh, tool and so on, or a North Compass or something, but it's another thing to get a... Uh, to get to meddle with your biology and start using like neuroimplants or even anything before the neuroimplant mm -hmm. level. So have you experimented with, with any of that? Uh, have you thought of experimenting? Why? Why so, not? So I've thought about experimenting. I did, I did some stuff with EEG and we also, I've tried to build versions of the NorthPaw that use um, electrical stimulation instead of using mechanical stimulation. Mm -hmm. The idea being partly that Electrical stimulation is a lot lower power, and so you could reduce the um, battery usage, make the product cheaper and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in the end, I think I read the easiest way to get to my current position would be to talk about there's this book by Andy Clark called uh, Natural Born Cyborgs. 
And his philosophy is basically that humans are naturally cyborgs, that, that what the human brain is all about is figuring out how to integrate aspects of our world into ourselves. And, and I mean, the most pedestrian example of that kind of thing is clothing, right? Humans wear clothing as if it was a part of ourselves, right? And if we don't wear clothing, we feel very strange. And tool use is just a, a further extension of that, right? When you put the hammer in your hand, suddenly what you are is augmented by the hammer. And the, the really interesting thing, actually, about the um, Andy Clark book is he talks about how even things like our own arms are uh, mentally, psychologically the same. So the way that the human brain adapts to the way that your hands work is the same way that the brain adapts to the way that a hammer works. And you can see this, like if, if you get injured or whatever, if you, if you have to limp, your, your, your brain will reconfigure itself and you have an entirely new walking gait for as long as you need it. And similarly, if, you, like if your arm is in a sling, your other arm will take over tasks that your first arm used to do. And so the, the whole way that the human brain works is this like brain plasticity, this idea that I'm just going to adapt to what's around me and I'm going to make you know, various tools a part of my you know, psychological repertoire. And so I, I think that humans are naturally cyborgs. Even if all we're doing is strapping you know, electronics to ourselves, those electronics fundamentally augment ourselves. We become mentally dependent on them. And this is really true. It's really obvious, actually, with the rise of um, what, what I'm now calling carryables, so this idea of like smartphones. Yeah. Your smartphone augments you in such a way that if you take your smartphone away, you will be profoundly crippled, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, lots of people now have the experience of like without their smartphone, they're suddenly lost, right? Like without GPS navigation, oh my goodness. Yeah, but yeah like my ability to interact with the world suddenly like way down, right? And, and a similar thing with, with Google, right? This idea that if I want an answer, I can get an answer. And, I, and I've come to depend on that. And I don't, you know, I no longer like, you know, try to memorize large things or formulas or anything. I know that I can find it again, right? I agree with all those things that you said, but why not take the next step? Why don't you start doing something like do-it-yourself bioimplants or something mm -hmm. like that? So, so several people are doing that kind of thing. I'm not. The, the most famous, actually, uh, is the Leet Anonym over in the UK. She's, she has a project to take Northpaw and make an implantable version of it, Yeah. which is an interesting project. I personally think it'll be kind of gruesome <laughs> like there's a lot of parts in a north bar right you're gonna have to implant like at least eight things <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i mean part of part of what convinced me not to follow that path myself is is precisely this idea that you, you're augmented even if it's not physically a part of you even if you just strap it on it still augments you mentally in the same way that it would if it's actually a part of you so i think you can achieve like 90 percent of the cyborg vision Without actually, you know, endangering your your physical form, yeah, yeah, or your eyes, yeah, specifically, yeah. And, and yeah. I agree with you entirely because I, for example, am early adopter of technology when it comes in the forms of external hardware and software, etc. But when it comes to the point of uh, actually being early adopter on bio implants and things like that. You know, I want it to be a proven concept first, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I don't want to believe. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've talked all the time about kind of like the technological um, cycle, right? And it starts with like, you know, alpha users, which is usually like the the people who are developing a technology using it themselves, and then there's like a small beta group, and then there's like a 1.0 release, which is wider, and then there's a 2.0 release, and I'm kind of a like, on on some things I'm a 1.0 user, 
And on some things, I'm a 2.0 user, right? I'm never a beta user, and I'm never an alpha user, right? Like, so you have to kind of decide, like, where's your risk threshold, right? And I totally think for, like, implanted things, I'd probably be, like, a 3.0 kind of a guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But then aren't we running the risk of being left behind? Because by the time something, uh, say, in terms of bioimplants, etc., or neuroimplants comes to version 3.0, yeah, millions you know, of people already have it and you're in the dust. So yeah. so much behind that perhaps arguably we might not be able to ever catch up again. Yeah, I mean there's some risk there. So I, I would reserve the right to evaluate every technology <laughs> and make my own decisions. But yeah. but I mean the other thing about the way technology moves right now is like if you go in for the early version, you may because you've already had surgery and you've got like scar tissue or whatever, you may not be able to get the later versions. And the later versions are gonna be better. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think at, at some point there's going to be like a leveling off in technology, but I think we're so far from there right now that, yeah, you, you'd have to be crazy to think that the first generation people are going to be the ultimate long-term winners. I think it's about knowing and, and, and judging when it's time for you to make the leap mm -hmm. and, and, and take the risk and when sort of the, the benefit is much more uh, uh, probable or, or likely than sort of the native uh, potential effects. Yeah. Um, but I think it's uh, about time to, to bring our interview to a close here. So perhaps, perhaps just uh, as a last question, what do you want your parting message to be uh, with us today? Yeah, my parting message is always the same. It's um, do-it-yourself transhumanism. Uh, right now there's a really accessible level in electronics and, and in lots of hacking. You can get out there and do your own thing. So if you've got some idea for how to augment yourself, it's totally within reach, even for hobbyists. So my message is, get out there and do it. That's fantastic, Eric. Thank you very much for being with us today and for letting us come and visit you at uh, hackerlab.to. Thank you. Yeah.